he's drunk already, <laughs> folks. <laughs> That's actually half true. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of Celluloid Junkies, a special Halloween episode. I am Luke Kane and I am joined by the Pazuzu to my Reagan, Damien Heath. Damien, how are you? I'm good, Luke. How are you on this spooky evening? (laughs) Well, I'm a bit more creeped out now. In this episode, we are going to be reminiscing on that time in 1973 when Warner Brothers reminded America that 90% of them were Christian and that that can go one of two ways, as it does in William Friedkin's 1973 classic, The Exorcist. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world. The world of darkness. expected it. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! The one hope. The only hope. The exorcist. William Peter Blatty was 43 when he sat down with Dick Cavett to talk about his new novel, The Exorcist. The Dick Cavett Show! Cavett did not like the book, and Blatty knew it. It was pure luck Robert Shaw pulled out while he was in Manhattan trying out for the show. He wasn't complaining, he was primed. The book needed help. Reviews had been strong, but sales had been poor and they weren't picking up. It seemed that every other day his publisher called with the latest number of return shipments from booksellers. He'd worried people would hate the book, but it now looked destined for a worse fate, obscurity. The first two guests fizzled out faster than expected. Bloody was called unceremoniously to the soundstage. Cavett began with a polite lie. I'm sorry, Mr. Blatty, I haven't read your book. Then may I tell you about it, Bloody asked. For 40 minutes, he held the ear of America's late-night audience. He spoke with authority about Christianity, demonology, and documented accounts of exorcisms in modern-day America. Cabot might have been nodding off, but his audience couldn't believe what they were hearing. Sure, exorcisms probably still take place in primitive tribes, but hadn't advancement in medical science put an end to exorcisms in the West? No, he assured them, and he should know. He'd been following cases of demonic possession for 20 years, long before the exhaustive research process and nine months it took to write the book. 
He even got in touch with William Bodern, one of the six priests involved in the final 1949 exorcism of an unidentified 14-year-old boy in St. Louis, which had inspired the novel. Bodern and Blatty would keep up a correspondence that lasted until Bodern's death in 1981. The Cavett interview did the trick. The book climbed to number one on the New York Times bestseller list, and it stayed there. By the time the movie rolled out, it had sold four million copies. Blatty had always been enthusiastic about a possible film adaptation, but Hollywood wasn't banging down his door. Most story departments at the major studios didn't push the book up the chain, including Warner Brothers. Shirley MacLaine, upon whom he based the actress mother character Chris McNeil, was a neighbour of Blatty's. She liked the part and tried to get it financed. He met with her business partners, but the deal fell through, apparently because Blatty wouldn't share his producer credit. The next bite came from producer Paul Monash, whom we talked about in our Carrie episode. Monash liked the book and teamed up with Blatty to find it a home. He passed it on to John Kelly, an executive at Warner and one of the pioneers of the Hollywood New Wave. Accounts vary as to why Monash left production, but it boiled down to creative differences between him and Blatty. Warner's let Blatty buy Monash out, and in mid-1971, acquired the film rights for 600,000, with a contract that stipulated Blatty would write the screenplay, produce the film, and have director approval. Blatty knew the fantastic elements of the material would only work if they were tempered through a realistic lens. He sent the book to a young documentarian who'd won some awards. William Friedkin was in the middle of a press tour ahead of his first major release, The French Connection, when he read the book. He called Blatty immediately and said he was in if Blatty could convince Warners. That proved difficult. Friedkin was untested. Callie thought they could aim higher. He sent it to Mike Nichols, Arthur Penn, and Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick didn't dismiss it outright, but he would insist upon full creative control, something Blatty would simply not give up. Warner's resistance to Friedkin ended abruptly in October 1971, with the release and immense success of The French Connection. With Blatty belatedly welcomed into the Warner fold, Blatty handed him the 300-page screenplay adaptation. He variegated considerably from the book and included many new scenes. Friedkin hated it. They started from scratch, beginning an eight-month process in which Friedkin would underline text from the novel, which Blatty would then convert into a scene. Casting discussions were underway. The CEO at Warner, Ted Ashley, wanted Audrey Hepburn for Chris McNeil. Surprisingly, she was agreeable if the entire production shot in Rome, where she lived. Friedkin refused. Anne Bancroft wanted to do it, but she was pregnant. Jane Fonda didn't respond to the material. In what might have been an inspired casting choice, Friedkin and Blatty pushed for comedian Carol Burnett, but the studio laughed them off. Meanwhile, another relatively unknown actress had cold-called Friedkin, and was lobbying for the part. Ellen Burstyn had recently been nominated for her supporting performance in The Last Picture Show. He liked her voice. They met and hit it off. Warners was once again resistant, but with Hepburn, Bancroft and Fonda off the table, Burstyn was, as Friedkin put it, the last woman standing. Friedkin might have been hoping against hope when he offered the part of Father Merrin to his first choice, Max von Sydow. The star of The Seventh Seal and longtime Igmar Bergman muse surprised everyone by signing on immediately. For the anguished younger priest Damien Karras, Friedkin cast Jason Miller, an unknown actor and playwright he'd seen in a Broadway production. The search for Linda Blair was considerably more difficult. Casting agencies across the United States interviewed thousands of young girls. Friedkin met 12-year-old Linda Blair and her mother Eleanor when they showed up at his New York office one day unannounced. 
Blair had no acting experience, but she was bright and evanescent. Friedkin knew it wasn't enough. She had to be able to handle the explicit language and behaviours without becoming traumatised. He asked her a series of awkward questions about masturbation. When it was clear she understood what it was, he had her do a test with Burston, and shortly after, offered her the part. Principal photography began on August 21st, 1972. The film shot in New York City and Washington, with a short stint in northern Iraq. The shooting schedule, slated at 105 days, would blow out to over 200 as Friedkin pushed himself and others to their limit. Friedkin's willingness to endanger people for a perfect shot is well documented. Burston injured her back performing a stunt where she was rigged to a wire and pulled violently off her feet onto hardwood floor. She approached Friedkin and requested the stuntman use less force. Friedkin agreed, but later whispered to the stuntman to really give it to her this time. The moment of the injury and Burston's cry of pain is in the film. Jason Miller, who played Karras, says Freakin blasted a gun during a take, so his character looked sufficiently alarmed by a phone call. Another incident involved Freakin hitting William O'Malley across the face in front of a hundred stunned onlookers, so he appeared sufficiently rattled as he gave the last rites to his dying friend, Father Karras. In Fear of God, a documentary about the exorcist, Burston claims nine people linked to production died during filming. She even starts to list them, including the baby of an assistant cameraman who was born and died over the course of filming. It's true that Jack McGowan, the actor who plays Chris's bawdy, wet-lipped director whose bizarre death draws Lieutenant Kinderman into Reagan's orbit, died from complications with influenza a month after the film's release. All the deaths were from natural causes, and were not necessarily directly linked to production. As Von Sydow points out in the Fear of God documentary, in a shoot lasting two weeks nothing happens, but a lot happens over nine months. After the interior set of the house caught fire without apparent cause, destroying everything but Reagan's room and causing a six-week delay, Freakin had a local priest, Father King, bless the set. Whether it was a sincere move or cynical publicity stunt, it did provide relief to some of the cast and crew. These and other stories were, of course, eaten up by the studio's publicity department, who used them to convince a largely Christian audience that The Exorcist was not simply a movie, but a cursed object imprinted with the unholy forces that had plagued its filming. The Exorcist set was cold and miserable. Cold because air conditioners kept the temperature well below zero to capture the fine mist of condensation on the actors' breaths. Unpleasant because of Freakin's explosive rages and bickering with Blatty. As Freakin continued to fall behind schedule, studio men started appearing on set, distinguishable by their LA tans. This did nothing to stem the tension in the air. Freakin assembled an entourage of artists to lend credibility to the ancient Mesopotamian demon living inside Reagan. Special effects giant Dick Smith applied prosthetics to create the iconic face. He also convincingly aged von Sydow from 44 to 74. The contribution of Eileen Dietz, Blair's stand-in, is less clear. After the film's release, she would file a lawsuit claiming she was on screen often enough to be paid as a principal actor. Friedkin claims she is in the film a total of eight seconds. She lost the lawsuit. Finally, to give Reagan her demonic voice was screen veteran Mercedes McCambridge. The Oscar winner fondly remembered for playing gruff, androgynous types put her larynx through hell, recording the gravelly, jarring tones of Pazuzu. She was mortified when she discovered her name did not appear in the credits, and went to the New York Times. 
Over the years, both Dietz and McCambridge have accused Friedkin of downplaying their contribution to fit the studio's narrative that there were no crutches. Linda Blair's performance was so authentic and the film so terrifying because they were in communion with dark entities. Once the shoot finally ended, Friedkin holed up in his New York office with his editor. The 140 minute cut finally received by Warners came as little consolation. John Kelly suggested a few cuts, including the final scene where Lieutenant Kinderman and Father Dyer forge a friendship. When Blatty found out Friedkin had cut that final scene, he was furious, but their brief falling out would be negated by the events that followed the film's release on the 26th of December, 1973. So Damien, tell me about you and The Exorcist, because I've got to tell you, I've known you a a long time. I think we can both agree on that. And uh, if someone had asked me, I would have said, no, Damien's not really a fan. The Exorcist always had a huge reputation before I'd even seen it. And at that point, it wouldn't have yet been 25 years old. The re-release wouldn't have happened uh, when I first saw it. So I remember it was daunting to see it for the first time because I was I had been left with such an impression by all of these horror movies that I'd been digesting. And, you know, this was a horror household. My mum used to love horror. I used to peek through the door when she was watching something just so that I could see it. I always had this fascination with those movies. And when I saw it for the first time, I thought it was good, but I was underwhelmed. At that point, I think I was somewhat used to gore and tension. Uh, I'd watched a whole bunch of 70s horrors like Texas Chainsaw, The Hills Have Eyes. I was a huge slasher fan already because of the Friday the 13th series. I'd even seen some of the classics which had left a big impression on me, and one of those was Psycho. So to my still-forming movie brain, The Exorcist just wasn't as exciting as any of those. After that, the history of the film got a bit bastardised with the director's cut. Uh, That was called the version you've never seen when it was released, and that became the one that was easily accessible on DVD. And so the original was a bit lost for a while. For this podcast, I made a point of finding a copy of the original cut to watch, and I was blown away by how good it is. I've never looked at this movie so closely. I've really found a new respect for it. I was especially impressed by Ellen Burstyn's performance, and I messaged her in the middle of watching it saying, Ellen Burstyn is so fucking amazing. It immediately ranks up there as one of the best I've seen in any horror movie. I was impressed by the special effects, and that was one of the things I remember when the re-release came out, and they had headlines in the newspapers like, our audiences laugh the exorcist out of the cinema, things like that, because obviously special effects, subjectively, they improve over time. People say that the special effects in, you know, this era of CGI are a lot better than the special effects in the time of Jaws, in the time of mechanics and animatronics. I was impressed by the special effects in this movie. I think they hold up extremely well. And the fact that they're all done manually instead of with computer-generated imagery, I think adds to how effective they are in this film. I hadn't seen the slashes and all of those films that you say you saw. I, I had been fairly sheltered. And the horror films that I was permitted to see were more high-end, sophisticated, mainstream studio-type horror, like The Exorcist. Uh, But I had to wait for The Exorcist. I think I must have seen it when I was about 15. I rented it. I found it really, really frightening. But it was tempered by the fact that I'd heard that it was the most frightening film. So, like you, I think I was slightly underwhelmed. Because I don't think that growing up in the 90s and seeing The Exorcist for the first time, you couldn't really see the film without knowing about all of the junk that comes with the movie. Mm. So then, of course, you're going in thinking that you're going to have 
potentially a life-changing experience and that you might not even survive this. That was seriously the feeling when I first saw The Exorcist. I, I, I worried, what, am I going to am I gonna have a heart attack? Am I going to be scared to death by this film? And of course, when you're not, you're a little bit like, oh, it's fine. <laughs> the first half has always been more interesting to me than the second half, and that's still true. I was particularly sensitive to Ellen Burstyn's performance and her suffering. I don't think people can understand quite how affecting this film was on a global level because films don't do that anymore. But in in 1973, when The Exorcist came out, it was what was happening. It was what people were talking about. And unfortunately, films don't have that sort of social impact anymore, or rarely. David Sheehan is with us tonight to talk about a movie that has people passing out in the lobby on their way in or on their way out, David. Well, you've heard about all those reports about The Exorcist and uh, the trouble it's causing, people fainting and so forth. I went to check it out. The manager of the National Theatre in Westwood says that there indeed are at least a dozen people who faint or become ill during every showing. But The Exorcist is still drawing sellout houses for every performance, complete with lines around the block. I spent an evening in the lobby just to see if people really do come stumbling out in the middle of the picture, as reported. They did, so I asked them why. It just scared me to death. Things just like this, just, it just scared, really scared me to death. I'm just nervous. Do you remember what particular scene it was that... Uh, when that... she was in, what was it? When she was in a room, the doctors came in, and she was, when I guess it was when she was talking to Devil's Voice. Oh... Oh, God, I can't believe it. Are you going to go back in and see more of the movie now? Probably, yeah. What are you going to do right now? I don't want to see it, but my curiosity is killing me. I have to see it. I fainted like 10 minutes after the first beginning of the movie. And I walked out, and they gave me some water. I passed out in, in about the first half hour, yeah. yeah. Do you remember what, what it was, what scene it was that affected you so convulsions, much? Convulsions, when she took convulsions. Because I have a little girl, and it was like watching my little girl. I think it's disgusting. Why? I don't know, it's just, it's just, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make me want to get sick like everybody says. It just, my legs are just going, Neh. and I want to go in the lobby and not watch it, and I have to cover my ears. <laughs> what was it that made that happen? When, when she started talking like, devil coming out of her. Bleh. How about you? Uh, I can't even describe it. It's so horrible. It just, I don't coming? know why I waited four hours to see that. What interested me about doing this show was to try and work out where American audiences were in 1973 when they sat down to watch The Exorcist for the first time. If we can work out where they were, then maybe we can work out why the film had the impact that it had, this exceptional impact that it had, because really no film has had that sort of impact, or very few, maybe maybe five or ten, have had the, the, the impact that Exorcist had. I think one of the interesting choices in the film was to make Father Karras a psychologist, which blends uh, both faith and science. As we know, he's experiencing this crisis of faith. It's partly due to his mother's gradual decline, his inability to help her. Obviously, a variety of other factors as well. I think it's also there to lend credibility to the Catholic institution because the uh, other priest in the film, Father Merrin, is an archaeologist. So it's, it's trying to depict priests as 
highly intellectual, extremely well-rounded, well-educated people. And uh, obviously the pro-church elements of the movie extend beyond that, but I think that that was very deliberate to give these men university education. It's funny, when I was a teenager, the stuff with the mum bored me to tears, and now I watch the film and I wish there was more of that. The images of the mother walking up the subway steps and down in his dreams are so evocative of dreams I've had. Mm. I mean, I remember when I was a teenager, I used to have this recurring dream where my family were walking out of my house, like out the front gate, and I was standing there and I couldn't move, and they were just leaving, and I was aware that this was the last time I was going to see them. And that was just shudderingly terrifying to me. And I would wake up in, you know, sweat and screaming and those images draw that memory back for me. Your mother's in here with his cash. Would you like to leave a message? I see that she gets it. Let's talk a little bit about Karras's world, because obviously the film is so much about him and his crisis of faith. We see Karras and we see Chris before they meet, before these stories intersect. And their worlds are so different. I mean, Karis walks around this neighborhood that looks practically post-apocalyptic. The sidewalks are littered with trash and things. The buildings are brown and unkempt. There's all these thugs on the street. It's so well contrasted with Chris's neighborhood, which is upmarket and pretty and green and manicured. It's a great way of sending a message to the audience that these two people are so alien from one another. There is a, a, a marked difference between them, but also they are introduced in a tangential way before they actually meet, and that's through Kinderman. The idea of religion and science is explored really well in this film, and you need the journey of Karis and uh, Chris to explore that theme. Most of all, those, those testing scenes of Reagan are probably the most compelling part of the movie. Time magazine released in a controversial cover in 1966 that was a simple black background and it just had three words on it. And those words were, is God dead? In big red lettering. And you can imagine the response that that got in 1966. Uh, the article was actually about the problem facing theologians to make God relevant in an increasingly secular age. The thinkers that are referenced in the article theorize that God has either dead or abandoned us long ago, which is a far more sobering idea than if he'd never existed in the first place. And this is the world I, I think Karras inhabits. It's not one in which God never existed. It's one in which he possibly died long ago, which explains why horrors like his mother's death and Reagan's possession go unopposed. And if God is indeed dead, then what has Karras's life been about? Uh, and everything about the film suggests this withering away of life. Even the fact that we see Karras boxing and running, he's constantly doing activities that are staving off death and the aging process. And the fact that the world does look, his world does look so withered and trashy and gone to the dogs, all of it lends credence to this idea that maybe God was here once, but he's not anymore. You know, it's funny. If you wasn't a priest, you'd be famous psychiatrist now, Park Avenue. Your mother should be living in a penthouse instead of there. Couldn't you put us someplace else? Like what? Private hospital? Who got the money for that, Dimi? You? So how do you feel like that reflects upon the audience? The film needed to put Karis and Chris in the same place 
psychologically in order to make their collaboration with Reagan credible. If Chris wasn't desperate, we wouldn't accept her turning to the church. If Karis wasn't desperate, we wouldn't accept him taking on Reagan as a personal project and not just deferring to the church's judgment. I mean, Pauline Kael's going to go on to say that this is the biggest recruiting poster for the Catholic Church since the bells of St. Mary's. In a way, it is. I looked at um, (laughs) this a little bit differently. I looked at it more from Chris's perspective. So um, I looked at this idea of religion versus science and technology and the technological benefits that science has brought. Father Karras even references some of these. Well, since we learned about mental illness, paranoia, schizophrenia, all those things they taught me at Harvard. Miss McNeil, since the day I joined the Jesuits, I've never met one priest who has performed an exorcism, not one. Firstly, we, we look at Reagan's affliction from a medical standpoint, and we go through that really enthralling, very bloody arteriogram. Well, the carotid angiography scene is considered by many to be the most horrific in the film. (laughs) It's also wonderful prescience of the film that Reagan's doctors initially diagnose her with essentially ADD, or a disorder of the nerves as they put it, and that they prescribe her Ritalin, given that we now know how many children are misdiagnosed with that. It's basically the go-to when you don't know what's wrong, but it's something that's to do with mood behaviour. I'm really sorry to do this to you, Damien, but Carol J. Clover, (laughs) she wrote about the exorcist in her book, and she talks about the difference between white science and dark magic. The inevitable lesson of the modern horror occult film is that white science has its limits and that it does not yield in the extremity to the wisdom of dark magic. But before one can provide a supernatural solution, one must admit the supernatural nature of the problem. She writes that the drama of the film is in the process of conversion, the shedding of disbelief insofar as the occult film repeatedly elaborates the distinction between white science and black magic in terms of race, class, and gender, it traffics in some of the most basic social tensions of our time. We still think of the temporal lobe. Oh, what are you talking about, for Christ's sakes? Did you see her or not? She's acting like she's fucking out of her mind, psychotic, like a a split personality or... There haven't been more than a hundred authentic cases of so-called split personality, Mrs. McNeil. After you've had this arteriogram, you get that scene where she's given uh, a series of x-rays on her head. The doctors at this point feel that it may be related to chemical electrical activity in her temporal lobe. And again, this is done in minute detail. Uh, as an audience, we, we feel and we respond to the loud knocking and pounding sounds of this machine against this timid little girl. And these sounds are then echoed in the next shot where the doctor studies the results on a light board. So as those scans change, you get this loud whirring sound. Uh, It almost brings a rhythm to these scenes. Mm. Do you have any religious beliefs? No. What about your daughter? No. Why? Have you ever heard of exorcism? Well, it's a stylized ritual in which the uh, rabbi or the priest try to drive out this so-called invading spirit. It's been uh, pretty much discarded these days, except by the the Catholics who keep it in the closet as a sort of an embarrassment. But uh, it uh, has worked, in fact, although not for the reasons they think. Of course, it's it's, uh, purely a force of suggestion. The the victim's belief in possession is what helped cause it. So in that same way, the belief in the power of exorcism can make it disappear. 
You're telling me that I should take my daughter to a witch doctor. So at the time that The Exorcist came out, Christianity was still the largest world religion. It does account for 33% of the population in the Western world, but it's faltered slightly over the last century while the number of secularists continue to rise. And there are many reasons for that, which we could list a dozen off the top of our heads now. Big Bang Theory, Roe versus Wade, uh, Darwinism, uh, Industrial Revolution. There are so many reasons why people have found it more and more difficult to embrace science and religion. In UK, Sweden, France, Germany, the US and Australia, all those countries have reported mass attendance rates are dropping, churches are being decommissioned, fewer priests are entering seminaries. We now live in what's been described as a post-Christian era, which is defined as a time when the teachings of the church no longer have primacy over our core social and political values. This ties in with the secularization thesis, which is the idea that, and, and this thesis is based on philosophers like Nietzsche, and, and you know, people have had this idea for ages, that as a society develops, our reliance upon religious beliefs will lessen. However, there is one country which has bucked the trend. Would you like to guess which one? The United States. You got it. Anthropologists have posited various theories over the years to explain this arrested development in the United States. Is that your own little addition there, arrested development? It is. Do you like it? Yeah, I loved, I loved it. Of course I did. Oh, good. <laughs> Derek Thompson wrote an article for The Atlantic in 2019 called Three Decades Ago America Lost Its Religion, Why? And he wrote, No country prays nearly as much as the US, and no country that prays as much as the US is nearly as rich. America's unique synthesis of wealth and worship has puzzled international observers and foiled their grandest theories of a global secular takeover. So up until 1991, the number of Americans unaffiliated with a religion was steady at 6%. It had been 6% for decades, but then 1991, it starts trending upwards and it's still climbing to this day, to the point where by 2016, 25% of Americans claim to have no formal religious identity. A sociologist who is cited in, in Thompson's article gives three reasons for this. He says that in the 1970s, when the religious right began financing the Republican Party, which you actually spoke about in our Carrie episode. Also, interestingly, in 1991, the Cold War ended, the USSR finished, so the great atheist enemy was no longer a part of America's news life. And then, of course, in September 2001, the Twin Towers were attacked by terrorists, and this created a fear and a general mistrust of any kind of fanaticism or devotionalism to religion. So the rise of secularism in America was still 20 years away when The Exorcist was first released. People who'd grown up Catholic and gotten caught up in the social and political tumult of the 60s were starting to even out by 1973, and they were returning to a more conservative era politically because we were about to see Reaganism come in. So the exorcist and the hype around it must have felt like a bit of a backhander to a lot of people who'd not really considered the place religion held in their lives since their childhood in the 50s. Reports of people returning to the church and joining the priesthood after the film's release were ubiquitous. The film worked as well as a piece of church propaganda as it does as a genre film. Potentially the response that people were having was a reference to their own Catholic guilt, their own lapsed Catholicism. I think a lot of people were sitting in the cinema going, oh my God, she's saying cunt a lot. I better really take my kid to Sunday Mass more. Or the kid was there saying, why have I never been to Sunday Mass, mummy? You cunt. <laughs>
they go to great lengths to make Chris McNeil not a traditional mum. She's obviously divorced. You know, the night before she tells Reagan, I'll always love your daddy. And then the next morning, Reagan gets up in the morning on her birthday, her 12th birthday, and she can hear her mum saying, oh, he's, you know, what's wrong with him for Christ's sake? He's such an idiot. And she's just abusing the shit out of him. The other thing is that she's always having these, like, boozy parties. She knows all these boozy people. She's always, like, I don't know, like, giving Reagan sleeping pills to go to sleep so that she can entertain these guests at a piano lounge. All of it feels very like, oh, this is a very secular woman. This is a woman who's made certain choices about how she's going to live her life, and now we are going to put her through hell for it. And as that video that I sent you made clear that, you know, she's so happy that Reagan's birthday is going to be on a Sunday because it's a day off. I thought that was really interesting as well. It's not the day of worship. It's just a day off. It's truly heartbreaking. The scene where Reagan is talking to her about Burke Dennings and saying, well, if you want to invite him to my birthday, you can, mum. But that's just her way of trying to work out, well, how close is this guy to becoming my stepdad? And the fact that Chris is so evasive with her and casual about it until finally she tells her there's nothing going on. It really just does seem to be this indictment upon divorce and upon parents who choose to get divorced. Chris McNeil. Please go away. I'm Father Karras. I'm very sorry. Hello. It's all right. I should have told you I wouldn't be in uniform. Yeah, that would have helped. The relationship between Karras and Chris really is symbolic of the relationship, the contemporary relationship in the West between believer and skeptic, which is no longer violent, but there is still a huge bridge. Yeah. I really love that Karis and Chris spy each other before they're introduced at separate intervals. Karis sees Chris first in character performing in front of Georgetown University, and Chris peers through a fence and sees Karis counselling another priest. And it's as if each one is peering into a world that is totally alien to them, and because it's alien there's this mixture of curiosity and certain inherent prejudices. Both catch the other in moments where they're behaving fraudulently. Chris is making a movie she doesn't care about, but she's acting as if she does. And Karis is encouraging a younger priest to keep his faith when he doubts his own. The hypocrisies are private, but each recognises it in the other. And of course, what brings them together is a crisis, because nothing short of that could unite such diametrically opposed people. Blatty is clear on his intentions here. He said that what I needed was an event so horrific that it would drive this woman who was an atheist into the arms of a Jesuit priest. And of course, what he came up with was the genital mutilation scene, which is so outrageous, but it does excuse Chris from defending any actions she takes after it. The very first thing, as you said, that Chris says to Father Karras when they do meet is go away. And I don't think that's at all incidental. She is waiting on a bridge and assumes he's a fan because he's not wearing his robes, as you've said. But these words already suggest the uncertainty upon which any contract between these two will be made. And that's been true of secular and non-secular factions politically and socially for as long as human beings have been on the planet. It just so happens that somebody very close to me is, is probably possessed and needs an exorcism. Father Karras is my little girl. 
that's all the more reason to forget about exorcism. Why? I don't understand. To begin with, it could make things worse. Oh, how? Secondly, the church, before it approves an exorcism, conducts an investigation to see if it's warranted. That takes time. Oh, yeah. Meanwhile, it, your daughter... You could do it yourself, No, could I you? couldn't. I need church approval, and that's rarely given. Could you see her? Yes, I could. I could see her as a psychiatrist, but I can't oh, see her. Oh, not a psychiatrist. She needs a priest. She's already seen every fucking psychiatrist in the world, and they sent me to you. Now you're going to send me back to them? Jesus Christ, won't somebody no, help me? No, you don't me? see. You don't understand. Oh, Your daughter... God, can't you help her? Just help her! I think it's Ellen Burstyn's best scene. I love it because she spends so long dancing around the subject, but then she starts talking rather unexpectedly about demons and exorcism, and she does it very calmly and seriously. But before she starts talking about it, she gives him a hypothetical about if a criminal came to you and said they committed murder, you know, would you be able to turn them in? And he assures her that he would not, but that he would encourage the killer to get help. But what's brilliant about this scene is that it's awkward. It's so different from the conversations, the same conversations in other demonic possession movies. It's static. There are pauses. There are non sequiturs. It feels like two adults who are aware they're having an absurd discussion, but continue to do so because neither one has a choice. And even though they have the discussion, we are conscious of the fact that both characters remain completely blind to each other's perspectives. But that's okay. We're going to try and help each other anyway. You're going to bring a shepherd back to the Lord, and I'm going to get my daughter back. And if we both get those two things, that's fine. I don't have to get you. You don't have to get me. But I just need my daughter back, and you just need to rid the world of this evil. So let's just make a truce and get it done, and then we can move on. Well, you know this director was doing the film here. Burke Dennings. I've seen him. You've seen him. You're also familiar how last week he died. Only what I read in the papers. Father, what do you know on the subject of witchcraft? I struggled with the role of Lieutenant Kinderman, who's played by Lee J. Cobb, who, for, who was in On the Waterfront and 12 Angry Men. I've kind of found a way to put this into how I feel he helps with the entire film and the plot of other characters as well, and this overarching idea of religion. I think there is a similar battle going on, as I said, between religion and forensic science, or what then was just called detective work. He's seeking answers to Burke's uh, Burke's death in the typical way in which a detective would. So he's asking questions. He's looking at the physical attributes of a death. He's confused by them, obviously, but he's, he's looking at them from a physical perspective. He consults Karras as to whether he has, as a psychiatrist, treated anybody who was capable of twisting Burke's head backwards and throwing him down the stairs. And what's the one thing that stands in the way of Kinderman getting an answer from Karras is that he is also a priest. And so, you know, he turns around and says, I could just tell the judge that it was said in confession. You know, so religion is blocking his forensic science. Kinderman says that Burke's killer and whoever desecrated the statue in the church may be the same person. But he comes up against the same roadblocks in his investigation as the doctors into their investigation into Reagan's ailments. That's because we'll find out that the answers to Burke's deaths relate more to the religious than the scientific. 
And I think the film does a really wonderful job of having these narrative threads that are loosely tied together, but which add to the story if you look into it deep enough, but they add to the feeling of the movie. And Kinderman's Ark is one of these and Burke's death is another. They both could have been left out of the movie without too much of an effect on the film's message. But once you consider them in the context of these debates on science versus religion, they add more clout to what the movie is trying to make believable for the audience. It's going out of its way, completely out of its way and almost over the top to say, we've looked at medicine, we've looked at the mind and we've looked at criminal activity and we have no answer in any of those fields. The problem is that the scenes with Reagan, particularly in 1973, were so effective that everything else that's happening around them, our brain kind of puts them in a white noise section (laughs) and we vaguely follow it. But I think mostly we're waiting for Reagan to come back. I think unconsciously, though, that's that's why it's so effective is because it adds to the realism of the movie, even for something that is supernatural or unbelievable or impossible. It adds to the belief that this could actually happen because we are eliminating all of these and we are explicitly eliminating them in the case of the medical science and and in the case of Father Karras saying, you know, we don't do that anymore since we learned about all of these other things that could be happening to the human mind. So we are explicitly eliminating all of these religious possibilities and yet we can't find what's going on with Reagan. So I think unconsciously for the audience, even though it may be white noise, it adds up. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! Released on Boxing Day 1973, The Exorcist was greeted by a wave of hysteria with reports of fainting, vomiting, heart attacks and at least one miscarriage. In Pittsburgh and Toronto, it was claimed that several people had been committed to mental asylums after seeing the film. In Britain and Germany, it was blamed for suicides, and even used as a defence by murderer Nicholas Bell, who pleaded that the film had left him possessed. Evangelist Billy Graham stated that there was evil inherent in its very celluloid. Freakin is always trying to push past the artifice of cinema. He does that in many ways, and one of the ways is that he went and shot in Iraq, because that could have easily been done on a soundstage. And a lot of people feel like the Iraq scenes are incidental. Can you start the movie already? Can we get through Iraq and get to, you know, Washington? But, you know, you really do feel that Max von Sydow is in Iraq in those scenes, and it does add a certain verisimilitude to the film. But he does it in other ways, like casting non-actors, you know, having actual clinicians do the tests on Reagan, having actual priests be in the film, and all of these on-set pranks so that he can catch real reactions rather than performance reactions. Another fabulous shot and another great scene with Burston is the scene where she's shooting the movie, and there's that one take where she walks into the frame, and you see her, I think maybe she takes a drag on a cigarette, and kind of gets herself ready, but the camera doesn't leave her. And then as she's walking towards the scene, we see Ellen Burstyn become the character in the film. I was unsure. I was like, is she a protester or is she an actress? It's almost like an invasion of Ellen Burstyn's privacy, that scene. And it's just another scene that blurs the line between the reality of the movie and reality, reality. 
because suddenly you're not watching Chris McNeil, you're watching Ellen Burstyn's process. Yeah, I mean, look, Friedkin in the early 70s was at the top of his game as a young director who was really creating the rules. And he did have that documentary realism style that, as you said, that's what Blatty was after with his book. And that's what it required. One thing that I usually have a problem with in movies, but which works well for me in The Exorcist, is subliminal imagery. As I said, I watched the original cut of the film, which reportedly it has a lot less subliminal imagery than the director's cut. The shot of the devil's face in The Exorcist is one example of a time it does work well for me. The recurring use of the demon Pazuzu is also something I really like. First when Meryn sees it in Iraq, and then later when it's in the background of this silhouetted shot of Reagan in her bedroom in Washington. So I really like those things that I usually wouldn't like. I, I, I don't know if I excuse them for this movie, but I think they're very effective in this movie. The other thing that's very New Hollywood is the dream sequence of Father Karras. I mean, that kind of overt symbolism wasn't seen in Hollywood cinema much before the 1970s, at least after the silent era, but it was far likelier to be in a European film in the 50s and the 60s. So Friedkin uses the amulet dropping through the air to simulate the link between his mother's passing and the devil because he brought up the amulet earlier on in the film. So he then uses her descent down the subway steps to simulate her descent into hell. And then finally, when the amulet drops on the floor, we cut to a piercing scream of Reagan and back to reality. And the entire dream sequence is told in silence, almost in silence. We hear Karras, his lineal breathing, and the voices in his dream are either muffled or inaudible. And yet the whole sequence is done in a very dirty, very real way. Not the usual way you think of a dream sequence, which is highly stylized and clean. Its simplicity is its virtue. Stick your cock up her ass, you motherfucking worthless cocksucker. Be silent! The appeal of a film like this is, um, and especially The Exorcist as a prime example of the Possession movie, is that it does feature a middle-class family, which is the typical everyman scenario, made that way so we can see ourselves in that situation. Anytime that happens, obviously, since we place ourselves into that central premise, it's more effective at moving us and we respond in a stronger way. And that could have also had a lot to do with the audience response, including the physiological response that they had at the time. But the other thing that The Exorcist does, and it probably does it better than any of these other possession movies, is it gives us a series of images while it explores the characters that we're talking about or while they're having these discussions. So we get a conversation between Chris and Reagan while we're being shown a Ouija board, for instance, which Reagan has used. That's just a little bit of information about how she could have invited this in. We learn about Father Merrin's work and his health problems while he excavates this likeness of Pazuzu in Iraq. We learn uh, about his worries about Pazuzu while we're shown dogs fighting and the statue of it, which then comes back. And we learn about Father Karras's mother, and in doing so, we start to understand the crisis, his crisis of faith. So there's a lot of this recurring imagery in the film, and almost if not all of it, is very well thought out and effective because you start to subconsciously add up all of that imagery while you're watching the film. So the Ouija board, the demon, death, to gradually get both a belief in the possibility of possession coupled with this feeling of unease that explodes in the film's final half hour. And because you've been shown this imagery while exploring character, you care about the characters you've been seeing. This adds another layer of meaning to the viewing experience. If we didn't care, no matter how good the special effects were, the film's final half hour would be an unfortunate failure. Dime, 
Why you do this to me? Please, Timmy. I'm afraid. Είσαι πολύ κουρασμένος. Να πας στο κρεβάτι σου... You're not my So much of the text I read about the exorcist described the crucifix scene as the crucifix masturbation scene. Hmm. I don't get that. You don't think she's enjoying herself? No, I don't. <laughs> I think that that is very clearly a mutilation scene. I mean, yeah. Chris walks in and Reagan says, this sow is mine. This mm. pig is mine. Mm. And starts to stab this metal into her. I know it's so, it's the thought of watching that scene. The thought of what's going on slightly off screen down below is so painful. And those sound effects. Oh. That is Pazuzu saying to Chris, look what I can do to her. Hmm. I can mutilate her. And she is defenseless. Yeah. I mean, it is it is done in a... It, she, he is attacking her sexual reproductive organs, though. Yeah. There is a distinct comment on the sexuality there. But it is not a masturbation scene by any means. I get why people are saying that. I get why men are saying that. Because I swear to God, if somebody was lopping off a penis, nobody would say, how hot was that, you know, crucifixion castration scene? <laughs> it's the kind of house they don't build anymore. What do you think? I love it. A relic of a time when the world wasn't in such a hurry. Mommy, I want to go home. <laughs> Peace in this house. What do you want from us? The Amityville Horror, rated R. The Amityville Horror is based on a true story, or at least what was purported to be a true story, and is very effective. It's a bit nastier, more overtly horror, than either Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist. Which could be partly because it was released in 1979 when the genre had been through a renaissance and was more clearly defined. I say it's more horror because the central character, George Lutz, is a menacing would-be killer. And this is coupled with what is essentially a haunted house story. And that tells the story of the DeFeos. Was that ever disproven? Has that been disproven? By people with common sense, it was immediately. I mean, look, it's, um, I think that's a great story. Uh, and I think the character of George Lutz, as played by... It's Chris Christopherson, isn't it? James Brolin. James Brolin, isn't it? Barbara's husband, how dare you? Barbara's husband. Any film that has a character running to the library to look at newspaper articles had me at hello. Even the uh, remake of that is a lot of fun and scary as fuck, I've got to say, that remake. And hot as fuck because Ryan Reynolds can just run around without a shirt whenever he wants. And he's demented in it, so it's not even like he would have polite sex with you. It would oh, be, you know, all systems go. It would be, and with that beard. Whew. I have seen the dark shadows moving in the woods, and I have no doubt that whatever I have resurrected is sure to come calling for me. It was the woods themselves. They're alive. Evil Dead. They got up on the wrong side of the grave. Evil Dead from New Line Cinema. The Evil Dead by Sam Raimi is another great film. Its remake is very good too, but it's completely different than the Possession films that came before. It is pretty much this high-energy gonzo variation on the theme of Possession, this time with multiple possessions. Evil Dead is the definition of everything but the kitchen sink. Yeah, it is. Since the turn of the century, there have been some really good and some really bad examples. The Exorcism of Emily Rose is a lot of fun. 
Paranormal Activity took the Blair Witch style found footage movie as well as this idea of overarching surveillance and turned it into a very scary possession film. Drag Me to Hell was directed by Sam Raimi as well. That was a really short, fun, at times horrific story of this woman who puts a curse on somebody. So she is, uh, she needs to pass on that curse, that possession. It differs from those that came before as the terror is inflicted upon the person who is possessed rather than the possessed inflicting terror on others, which I thought was a really interesting about face. The same thing goes for Insidious, which I loved. I also thought The Conjuring 2 could have been a five-star movie if they'd cut out about 30 minutes of it and removed a lot of corny dialogue because they had the bones of a really great film under all of that trash. And another good one, I think, has been mostly forgotten. Uh, Luke, I don't know if you remember this film, is The Last Exorcism from 2010. That's another found footage movie about, uh, it's a documentary crew that uh, go to make a documentary about disproving exorcism and they take a priest along with them. But that's, a, that's another really good film, uh, one of the better examples from the last couple of decades. Another good exorcism movie that you just reminded me of saying that Last Exorcism was The Taking of Deborah Logan. I can't remember what year it was, but that film's interesting because the lead character has dementia or Alzheimer's. So the idea is that because there is all this dead space inside this person's brain that they then become vulnerable to demonic possession. Well, then let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Carras. And I'm that devil. Now kindly undo these straps. I'm sure it's not going to come as any kind of a surprise that The Exorcist was a financially successful film for Warner Brothers, but that's probably an understatement. Released on December 26, 1973 with its R rating, the studio expected middling success. They opened it on just 24 screens. This gave Friedkin license to oversee how the theatres were going to be treating his movie, and he did just that. He went into each and every one of those 24 screens to set the sound level for the film's screenings. I figured it took me three months to get the soundtrack, so it might as well be loud, he said, setting the level to 12 in all but one theatre. At Warner's expense, he replaced a dull and out-of-focus lens at one theatre and threatened to pull the film from another if they didn't replace the screen at a cost of $5,000. They replaced the screen. In its opening week, The Exorcist set records on almost all of those 24 screens, grossing an incredible $1.9 million and debuting in the box office charts at number three. The rest of the top 10 was fleshed out with big name male actors. There was a movie with Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman, one with Al Pacino, one with Clint Eastwood, and others with Richard Dreyfuss, Paul Newman, Robert Redford, Roy Scheider, and Woody Allen. In fact, the only films without A-list male leads were Disney's animated Robin Hood and The Exorcist, which is just one sign of how this film bucked the trends from the very beginning. The following week, the film rose up to number one on the back of strong word of mouth. Audiences were seen lining up around the block for many screenings, with some of them seeing the film multiple times. It proceeded to stay at number one for an astonishing 12 weeks, keeping out other high-profile films including The Sting, The Last Detail, Don't Look Now and, for those who enjoy stating that horror has similarities with porn, even Deep Throat Part 2. The film that eventually knocked it off its perch was The Sting, but only in the week after that George Roy Hill movie beat The Exorcist for Best Picture. Following a successful initial run, The Exorcist was re-released in June and hit the top spot again, staying there for another three weeks. 
It was re-released again in September of the following year and ranked second, and yet again in both May and August of 1976 and May of 1979, second again. In 1974, it grossed $66.3 million and had become Warner Brothers' highest grossing film, placing second that year only to The Sting with $72.2 million. By the end of the decade, after its many re-releases, it had grossed $89 million. In 2000, it hit cinemas again in The Exorcist, the version you've never seen, a stupid title for what was otherwise a director's cut. It was the same old story. The film debuted at number two and eventually grossed $39.6 million in a three-month run, adding another $72.3 million overseas. In 2010, it was given another small release and by the end of it all had taken $441.3 million. According to Box Office Mojo, the film sold 110.5 million tickets during its various releases, which is the ninth most in cinema history. And depending on your classification of horror, it's by far the highest number for a horror film. The Sixth Sense ranks 74th with 57.5 million tickets sold. In fact, even in real dollars at 1973's value, the film was the highest R-rated horror film of all time until it surpassed it just three years ago. That's a 44-year record, which is pretty much unheard of in cinema. While audiences obviously loved it, the same couldn't be said for all critics. For every glowing review, there was one equally scathing. The whole gamut of emotions was run, from fear and terror to hatred, anger, disappointment and condemnation. Roger Ebert loved it. In his four-star review for the Chicago Sun-Times, he said, If movies are, among other things, opportunities for escapism, then The Exorcist is one of the most powerful ever made. Our objections, our questions, occur in an intellectual context after the movie has ended. During the movie, there are no reservations, but only experiences. We feel shock, horror, nausea, fear, and some small measure of dogged hope. Rarely do movies affect us so deeply. The Exorcist is one of the best movies of its type ever made. It not only transcends the genre of terror, horror and the supernatural, but it transcends such serious, ambitious efforts in the same direction as Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby. Even in the extremes of Friedkin's vision, there is still a feeling that this is, after all, cinematic escapism and not a confrontation with real life. There is a fine line to be drawn here, and The Exorcist finds it and stays a millimetre on this side. Pauline Kael? Well, she didn't love it. She called it shallowness that asked to be taken seriously and labelled it an embarrassment. The film is a faithful adaptation of the Blatty book, and that's not a compliment. The movie may be in the worst imaginable taste, that is, an utterly unfeeling movie about miracles, but it's also the biggest recruiting poster the Catholic Church has had in years. The Exorcist is too ugly a phenomenon to take lightly. A critic can't fight it because it functions below the conscious level. How does one exercise the effects of a movie like this? There is no way. The movie industry is such that men of no taste and no imagination can have an incalculable influence. Friedkin, for his part, addressed in a 1974 interview when asked, the words Kale wrote in this review and a further article from August. He stated that Kale had attempted to interview him three times at that stage of his career, but he refused on each occasion as he viewed The New Yorker as an elitist magazine that is trying to foster an idea about the medium in which I work that is contrary to the facts about that medium. 
He also stated that he had publicly opposed Kale's view on Orson Welles when she wrote that he did not write Citizen Kane, and so there is a personal history that I have with her. He said, People never attend a movie in such numbers as when they go to see a hit because they hate the picture. There is only one reason a movie becomes a hit, and it's not publicity, it's not hype, it's not advertising. The only thing that causes people to go to the movies in such numbers is word of mouth. Kale condemns the audience out of hand for what they choose as opposed to what they don't choose, and is contemptuous of the audience for choosing X instead of choosing Y. Whichever way the reviews fell, the fact of the matter was that The Exorcist garnered 10 Academy Award nominations, tied with The Sting, again unheard of for a horror film. It lost Best Picture and Best Director to The Sting, and all three nominated actors, Ellen Burstyn, Linda Blair and Jason Miller, lost in their respective categories too. The film did win Best Sound, however, and William Peter Blatty also took home the Best Adapted Screenplay Award. It had better success at the Golden Globes, winning for Best Picture Drama, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Linda Blair for Best Supporting Actress. It should be noted that The Sting was almost shut out at those awards, garnering just one nomination for Best Screenplay. In fact, The Sting was the first film to win the Best Picture Oscar after winning no Globes. Too numerous to list are the accolades that have been afforded The Exorcist in the years following its release. It has topped countless lists of the best or scariest horror movies ever made, and in 2010 was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry. So significant was the film that the remainder of the 1970s spawned a number of imitators following in its wake, films like The Omen and The Amityville Horror, which cast established stars in lead roles in horror films, which was unusual for its time. The film spawned a bunch of sequels, all of lesser quality. Exorcist II The Heretic followed in 1977 and starred Linda Blair, debuting at number two and falling out of the top ten within four weeks. The Exorcist III was written and directed by William Peter Blatty based on his novel Legion and was an in-name only sequel dealing with a serial killer. The studio had Blatty adding an exorcism sequence to justify the title, which he opposed. Morgan Creek Pictures were commissioned a prequel in the early 2000s to be shot by Paul Schrader, but the finished product wasn't what they wanted and so they started again with Rennie Harlan, releasing Exorcist The Beginning in 2004. It was critically maligned and lost money due to its $50 million budget, and so Schrader released his version, Dominion, prequel to The Exorcist the following year, to slightly better reviews but almost zero box office dollars. Fox developed a television series that ran for two seasons a couple of years ago and was well received, but dwindling ratings forced its cancellation. Luckily, the original film hasn't been remade yet, but apparently that too is on the horizon. And Luke, just a little bit of trivia. When the film was first aired on CBS television in the early 1980s, just as a, an example of how our ideas of what's acceptable have changed, there's the line, shove it up your ass, you faggot. And when that was shown on television, it was changed to shut your face, you faggot. What? They had a problem with the <laughs> shove it up your ass, not the you faggot. It's good to know they had their priorities in order in 1973. Some of the sounds Reagan makes were a recording of which animal? Pigs squealing. Yes, that's right. Annoyingly, you get a point. Whatever. How many times do Father Karras and Father Merrin jointly repeat the phrase, the power of Christ compels you? Fifteen. Oh, you are so close. Fourteen. Oh, 
I think I should get that. I'll give you 0.9 of a point. Who did Warner Brothers want for the role of Father Marin? Marlon Brando, I believe. Oh, you're a dickhead. What did you do? Did you break into my, I don't know, like my location of my computer? What do they call that? An IP address? Did you break into my IP address and read my questions? The Exorcist was responsible for yet another success, the worldwide fame of Mike Oldfield, who recorded the track Tubular Bells, which was used in the film. How old was Oldfield at the time? 72. He was 19. Oh, wow. That's really impressive. Yeah. That music's great. It's got It's not horror music, but it's got this fantastic, anxious energy about it. It's perfect, and it's just become synonymous with the film. How long did it take to age Max von Sydow's each morning? Five hours. Three hours. Oh, I, I did actually read five hours for that. Can your next question not be a question where I am required to come up with a really specific number? Oh, yeah. That would be great. When Father Karras throws himself out of Reagan's bedroom window, what is graffitied on the wall directly opposite Reagan's house? I believe it is Death to the Pigs. It was... The same as what Manson would write on Sharon Tate's wall. Close. It's fight pigs. Are you kidding me? What? It says fight pigs. Okay, well, I get that point because I had no idea. Me putting the word pigs in was totally random. And therefore, either you give me the point or we deduce that I am, in fact, in league with supernatural forces. I'll give you the point. So that means I get... 1.9. 1.9 points. Yeah, so you're still below my two. Um, people, Some people have drawn similarities to, as you say, the Manson family's graffiti and blood of the word pig on the walls during Sharon Tate's murder. But others have explained it, the meaning, and it's never been revealed by either Blatty or Friedkin. I'm not sure if it's in the book. Some drew a comparison to a Bible story in which Jesus exercises a demon into a herd of pigs who then proceed to run into a lake and drown themselves. Well, those were our three questions, done and done. So have you got any more that you want to say or are you good to finish up here? We have been recording for two hours and ten minutes. Well, I've got six questions. uh, Five questions. It's up to you if you want to hear them. What were the series of paintings upon which Freakin based the famous scene of Father Marin arriving in the McNeil residence? You know, I, I looked at that. Earlier today, it was something, it was a, It was the picture of the lamp in front of a building and it was called Something of Light. I've forgotten though. It's Rene Magritte's Empire of Light series. Right. Uh, which star of 1976's The Omen was considered for a role in The Exorcist? I'm going to say, well, it couldn't be Gregory Peck, so it must be Lee Remick. Yes, it is. She was, um, she was considered for Chris McNeil as well. What brand of pea soup was used for the famous projectile vomiting scene? Anderson's. (laughs) Yes, that's right. They tried Campbell's, but they didn't like it. Okay, what was the only Middle Eastern country in which The Exorcist was originally released? Oh, that's a good question. I'm going to guess Iraq. No, Lebanon. Um, But it was banned everywhere else in the Middle East, and it was banned everywhere in the Middle East, even Lebanon, for the re-release. Why? It's such a conservative film. I guess it starts in the Middle East. Isn't that more reason to release it? Yeah, just like that time we saw Snowtown and somebody mentioned Salisbury and the whole audience, where are those Salisbury? <laughs> no, it was the, um, what was it called? Windy Point Restaurant. Oh, God. Everyone, oh, <laughs> we've been there. We've been to Windy Point. <laughs> you killed your mother. Your servant. You left her alone. Shut up. Oh!
All right, Damien, give me your final thoughts about The Exorcist. I know you've probably never, ever watched the film the way you did for this show, that you've had a totally different experience, that you were far more obviously analytical and cerebral about how you saw the film. So where has that left you? Well, I have to give it five stars. I'm not sure, as you say, I'm not sure that would have been the case before watching it this time. It's like I said, I felt like my impression of it was very muddled. But having revisited it for this podcast, watched it properly, analysed it, been theoretical, it is a clear example of a great horror movie. Well, I agree with you. I gave it five stars. I mean, to understand how completely not objective that rating is, when I was about 16 or 17, I remember all the movies I owned were from Target because Target had this film section. It was you know, tragically small, but it was just there. And they, they released these movies that you could buy for 10 bucks and then you would own it. And they had, I'd I'd obviously rented The Exorcist and then it it appeared in Target. It must've been around the time of when they did that re-release. I bought it and I remember it sitting in the playroom with all of our other videos, VHS, and I remember fawning over that cover and that tape and, and truly believing that there was something malevolent and having that kiddish feeling you do and that it was a special kind of artifact. I can't be objective about it. It's a film that's, it defined my childhood. It's built into my relationship with my sister, which is one of my most cherished relationships. I can quote it verbatim. It's just a film that I adore and that I can't be objective about. I know it's flawed. I know it probably doesn't stand up in 2020 the way it did even in 1990, but it doesn't matter to me. I can't see it any other way. Who died, Luke? The boom operator died. (laughs) The fridge man died. The baby died. My evening died. (laughs) Yes, uh, speaking of that, I think it is the end of our episode, our Halloween special on The Exorcist. You look like you have something to say, Luke. I was just going to say, you know, around 7pm, the sunlight (laughs) died. Thank you very much for joining us this special Halloween episode. Bit of a surprise. Next time we will be back and we will be looking at David Finch's Panic Room as promised. And I uh, look forward to joining you then, Luke. Yes, I mean, Panic Room is much like us, Damien. It's two people locked in a conversation. They can't go anywhere. They even have to toilet in front of each other, but they get through. (laughs) 